Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we continue our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew and we come to the latter part of chapter 12. So we will read this extended section starting in verse 15 and going to verse uh, 45. We may not get that far, but this is all part of, a, of an extended passage, so I want us to see it together. So reading then beginning at Matthew 12 verse 15. This is the word of God. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name Gentiles will trust. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind man and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, They will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open your word to us and that you would feed us and make us strong, encourage us. We do pray that you would convict us, break our bones, but we also pray that you would bind us up by your word and your spirit and make us uh, full of joy, full of gladness in your presence, full of a sense of great privilege to be your children, uh, full of gratitude and full of light to be your witnesses both to one another and to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see a, a full uh, and a strange mix of elements in this passage. We see Jesus as the gentle servant, uh, but then we also see him as the mighty one who is binding the strong man and plundering his house. We see Jesus withdrawing from conflict and avoiding it, and then we see him blasting away at the Pharisees, telling him that if uh, they're either for him or against him, if they're against him, they're against the kingdom of God, they're in danger of committing sin, they will never be forgiven. So this is a passage full of paradoxes uh, that we see in Christ. But these paradoxes are not new. We find them really throughout Scripture. We find them pertaining to God Himself. We find them pertaining to His salvation and to the great heroes that God raised up to lead and deliver His people in the Old Testament. Now, we've seen that Matthew, throughout his gospel, has been showing us how Jesus draws together all the stories and the heroes from the Old Testament. And He fulfills them all, doing what none of those heroes could do. And that is to actually bring about salvation to Israel and to the world. And he starts out by showing us that Jesus is the greater Moses. And then he goes on to show us, as we saw last week, Jesus is the greater David. He is David's greater son. And that is the one who brings rest. That's one of, been one of the overall things. The one who brings rest to God's people and to the world. In the Bible, rest and salvation are closely associated because rest means life as it was created to be. And in a fallen world, what is necessary for that is salvation, deliverance, deliverance from Satan, sin, and death. So salvation always brings rest, and if there is no rest, there is no salvation, and without salvation, there is no rest. And David was one of the greatest types of the Old Testament of a Savior. We often get the picture of a Savior out of our storybook Bibles, which is this willowy, metro-looking dude, um, you know, starting the original primal flower child movement. But in the Bible, a savior is a warrior. A savior is a commander in the field with a sword strapped to his side. And yet he is also this gentle one that we hear about in our text. 
And David, we see all of that. David is one of the main bringers of rest, of victory and salvation to God's people in the Old Testament. But when we look at David, we see that primarily David is a shepherd. David's a shepherd. That's who he is. He's a shepherd. He's a poet. He's a musician, composer. And in all, he is a passionate man of God. He is a passionate man of God who loves God, who submits himself to God. And God brings him out, turns him into a warrior and to a king. David is not someone who promoted himself. In fact, when Samuel came to anoint the new king after God had rejected uh, Saul, um, they went through all the sons of Jesse. It was never even crossed anybody's mind that, Nate, that David would be a candidate to be king. And they had to wait. You know, they, they, Jesse didn't even send for David, the youngest. Ultimately, he sends for David, and God tells Samuel, this is the one. And so we get this picture, the shepherd, servant, warrior, king in David. And so he is a picture of Jesus in all of those things. In fact, when David is before Saul, because he wants to go out and take on Goliath as a warrior, as a champion. Here's this shepherd. Um, He wants to go out and take on Goliath, and Saul doesn't want to let him go. He says, you don't know what you're up against. And David says, look, I kept my father's sheep. But think about part of what a shepherd does. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it. I struck it. I delivered the lamb. If it rose up against me, I grabbed it by the beard. I struck it and killed it. I've killed lions. I've killed bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. That's what he says. And so we see there's, a, there's this passion and fierceness in David uh, as a shepherd and his care for the sheep and his relationship with God. And then also in, as a warrior. And we see that David is not just a man of blood. He's not a warrior for the sake of being a warrior. He's a warrior against wolves and bears because he loves sheep. He hates wolves and lions and bears because he loves sheep. And because he loves sheep, because he's tender toward the sheep, he is fierce toward the lions and the bears who are the enemies of the sheep. And David was persecuted for these things. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Saul was rejected by God. Saul was not rejected by David. David wouldn't lay a hand on Saul. Even after he had been anointed as the king of Israel, he would not lay a hand on Saul. He continued to call him the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't put a hand on him. He ran. He fled. He tried to avoid conflict with Saul. But Saul pursued him and wanted to kill him. So David was persecuted for righteousness' sake. And... Over 90% of the persecution he faced came from within God's people. He was persecuted a little bit by some of the Gentiles. Had to escape from one of the Gentile kings by pretending to be insane. Uh, But most of the persecution is coming from God's own people, from the one who was wielding power among God's people illegitimately. And so we see all of this same mix. You see all these contradictions and paradoxes in a person we've seen before in the Bible. And we see them again here now, preeminently in Jesus, the son of David, the greater son of David. Well, let's consider how we see these different things. Well, the first element we see is the element of servant. In verse 15, we're told when Jesus knew it, knew what? 
knew that the Pharisees were plotting to destroy him. That's what, what took place in verse 14. He healed a man's withered arm on the Sabbath day, and it says they went out and plotted how they might uh, destroy him. He knows this, and his response to that is to withdraw. And he tells his disciples not to advertise who he is. In other words, he's doing all the wrong things if he wants to put together a traditional messianic movement within Judaism and get a throng of people around him and go victoriously in Jerusalem and to be swept into power and to lead Israel to throw off the yoke of Rome. He doesn't do any of those things. He withdraws and he tells his disciples not to advertise who he is. So we see him just like Saul avoid, I mean, David avoided conflict with Saul. Jesus is seeking to avoid conflict with Pharisees who are seeking to destroy him. Now in verse 17, Matthew tells us this was to fulfill a prophecy in the Old Testament, one spoken by Isaiah, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. He says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. I want you to notice these open words. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Now this passage in Isaiah 42 is near the beginning part of one of the most famous passages uh, of the Old Testament. It's what's known as the suffering servant passage, the servant passage. It's going to lead all the way up to Isaiah chapter 53 which is the one where it talks about him uh, bearing the wounds of his people, suffering for the transgressions of his people. In fact, uh, today after our confession, during the assurance of pardon, I said that by his wounds you were healed, by his stripes you were healed. That's language from Isaiah 15. Same servant. This passage starts out about the servant in Isaiah 42. And it says in verse 19, continuing to quote Isaiah, He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He is a servant. He is not promoting himself. He's not trying to bring about uh, a typical revolutionary movement. He's not trying to cause a bunch of tumult. Until it is time for the servant to suffer and die, Jesus will not initiate conflict with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. When he does go to Jerusalem and join the issues and confront them there, it will be because it is time for him to suffer and die. And when he sets his face to Jerusalem and cannot be deterred, at that point his disciples are telling him, you're crazy. Are you nuts? Do you not know what's going to happen if you go to Jerusalem? And at that point explains to them uh, something they did not understand, He said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the leaders. And they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be beaten and crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. So he went there uh, in a a success, not to succeed, but to fail. You can look at it that way in a certain regard. That's the way that we would certainly characterize it if we were Jesus' political handlers. He's going to Jerusalem when he goes to die. Now, we also see something interesting, though, about this servant that Isaiah is talking about. Matthew's quoting, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Listen to the next language. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. 
I will put my spirit upon him. Now, this language is very, very similar to the language of God the Father at Jesus' baptism. What does he say? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he causes the spirit to descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And so we see this is a servant. He is humble. He's not seeking his own will. He's seeking the will of another. But it's not a typical servant. This servant is also a son, the beloved one, on whom God's spirit is resting. And so this servant is a son. And this servant son has the spirit. And we're told that he will be characterized, therefore, by a couple of different things. First of all, in verse 20, continuing to quote Isaiah, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. Now, a reed was used for a couple of things in the ancient world. It was used for measuring, and it was used for support. And once it was no longer straight, either because it was bent or cracked or broken, it was useless. You couldn't lean on it. You've heard, this, you've heard the, the saying, you're leaning on a broken stick. Okay, that's the analogy here. Or it's like a yardstick once it's broken. You can't use it for measuring. And so it would be tossed out without thought. And, and that's the same thing with the next analogy. Strips of linen cloth were used in the ancient world for lamp wicks. And the thing was is that if a, if a wick started smoldering, started smoking, then it was useless. It was less than useless, actually, because it's putting pollutant into the air. It's putting smoke, filling your house with smoke, burning your eyes and so forth. So again, that's a wick that's got to be thrown out and replaced. So a bent reed and a smoking wick would both be immediately discarded as useless in the ancient world. But we know here that Isaiah and Matthew are not really talking about reeds and wicks. He's talking about people. In a fallen world, there are a lot of bent reeds and smoking wicks. In fact, in a fallen world, we're all bent reeds and smoking wicks. Now, some people are obviously so, like this demon-possessed, blind, and dumb man. Obviously, broken reed, smoking wick. Others can appear to be straight, bearing a good flame. They can appear to have their act together and things going along well. But if you're honest with yourself, you know what I know. And that is, there are multiple areas in each one of us in which we are bent reeds, broken reeds, and smoking wicks. You know that's true. And the point here is that the servant of God does not toss us aside as useless. He does not do the logical thing. Does not do the logical thing. We see a tremendous amount of compassion here. And we see a tremendous amount of power. Jesus not only specializes in bent reeds and smoking wicks. He specializes in saving and fixing them. And oftentimes, that's a lifelong process. Sometimes Jesus will fix a part of us that's a bent reed quickly. But um, with it, really, with every Christian, every mature Christian I've known, there's other areas. It's a lifelong process of Jesus binding us up and using us in spite of ourselves using us in spite of ourselves. The straightening process is a long, slow process, but Jesus uses us. 
He says, that's my army. That's my disciples. Bent reeds, smoking wicks. So you really have two types of people in the world. Those who are bent reeds and smoking wicks and know it, and those who are bent reeds and smoking wicks and don't know it. So if you are a bent reed and a broke smoking wick, good news. You can follow Jesus. He specializes in people like us. And so he will deliver us. So this is the first thing that characterizes the servant son who has the spirit. The second is he will deliver us. In other words, he's going to be a savior. And here we begin to see the paradox from this extreme, fierce compassion that Jesus has. And then on the other hand, we see uh, more of the warrior. Notice the rest of this verse. A bruised reed he will not break, smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will trust. So you can see that this is a complete salvation and a victory that's being won here. And the scope of it goes far beyond the people which Jesus was talking to at this time. It goes far beyond Israel. He's talking about the ends of the earth. This same servant, son, savior will deliver this salvation. Now we see these things in action in verse 22 when Jesus heals this demon-possessed man who is also blind and he's mute. And it's interesting that we see the same theme. If you go back to Isaiah, and you have to always have to remember, ancient world, uh, paper, well, not paper, uh, papyrus manuscript, it's like, it's precious, uh, ink, precious, time, you know, it's labor-intensive. They didn't have word processors back then. It's labor-intensive, computers in the manuscript. So when, when, when Matthew quotes four verses out of Isaiah 42, he's not proof-texting. He wants to call to our minds this entire extended passage that continues after it of the servant, the servant son who is also the savior and the warrior and so forth. And so in Isaiah 42, just two verses after what Matthew quotes for us in verse 6, I want, to, I want you to hear what it says. Talking to the servant, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison. Okay, so here you see the warrior and you see how this is symbolically filled in what Jesus does with this demon-possessed man who is blind and who is mute. He frees him from prison. He gives him his sight. He brings him out. Now, when the crowds see this, when they see this mix of servant and the spirit and the power and the deliverance and all of these things going on at once, what do they ask? You see, they, they know something about the Old Testament. They go, could this be the son of David? You see where their thoughts are, and you see how this is still the theme with Matthew, with Matthew the greater son of David, because they know who David was, and they're seeing the same elements in Jesus. And then finally, we see this element of the strong man. The servant, son, savior, with the spirit, is the strong man. He's the mighty warrior who carries forth the kingdom of God while plundering Satan's house. Now, this all comes into feature uh, because the Pharisees accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. That's in verse 24. Now, this is a real act of desperation on the part of the Pharisees because certainly 
Their first choice would be to simply deny that Jesus has any power, that he's a phony, he's a charlatan, you know, he's like uh, some of, the, uh, some of the, the healing shows that we get uh, within the church today where you have a big production come to town and the big setup and so on and so forth and all this kind of stuff. Of course, Jesus doesn't have any of that. And so, but they can't accuse him of that. They cannot deny the power that he has. They cannot deny what he is doing. So accusing him of casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons is, is kind of a last resort desperation argument. And it shows how hard their hearts are. It's really, it's really kind of an unnerving, it's a scary thing to see how hard their hearts are. Then in the face of such demonstration, not only of spirit and power, but love, deliverance, that they would just continue to double down and accuse Jesus of being God's enemy. Now, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus points out how their argument doesn't even make any sense on its own. If you forget all the facts, close everything off, all you know is the argument they're making. It doesn't make any sense. It falls of its own weight. He says, look, if Satan is going to turn against himself and cast himself out, how is his house going to stand? How is his kingdom going to stand? That just simply makes no sense. And then he, he takes a, a slightly different tack. Again, showing that their argument makes no sense in the context of their own experience there in Israel in their own day. There were other exorcists who would uh, try to cast out uh, demons, do it by various rituals and so forth. Um, and Jesus says, so... The problem with your argument, again, just looking at your argument itself, just look at what's going on with your approval and your imprimatur, is that your argument proves too much. By what power do your sons cast out demons? And so it, it really shows how the argument is, is one of desperation and hardness. And in verse 28, he points out the only other alternative, the only reasonable conclusion is that Jesus is casting out demons by the Spirit of God. Now, there were exorcists who operated in Israel at the time, but no one demonstrated the kind of power that Jesus did in casting out demons, making the blind see, making the dumb speak. Jesus didn't need a ritual to cast out demons. He did it with a word. He did it with a word. You remember when he crossed the sea to the land of the Gergesenes, and on the way over, stills the sea and the wind with a word, not a ritual. There's a man on the other side who's possessed by a legion of demons who nobody has been able to control. He's dangerous and violent. And again, the demons, before Jesus even says anything, we know who you are. We know who you are. Have you come to torment us before the time? They know. And so... Even uh, if these other exorcists are godly people who uh, are using Scripture and so forth to, in prayer to cast out demons, Jesus is in a different category. He does it with a word. And so it signifies that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is what the Pharisees profess to be waiting for so many long years with Israel 
in captivity and suffering, waiting for the Christ, waiting for the kingdom of God. And now it's here, and they find themselves fighting against it. In verse 29, Jesus says in so many words that he's plundering Satan's house. And this is what the kingdom of God is all about. Plundering Satan's kingdom by turning the earth into God's kingdom. And Jesus points out the obvious. You can't plunder a strong man's house, and Satan qualifies certainly as a strong man. You can't plunder his house unless you first bind the strong man. And Jesus is saying this is what he is doing to Satan. And the idea that Satan would do it to himself is ridiculous. Now this theme, again, the servant who is the son, who has the spirit, who is the savior, also being the strong man, we also find, not surprisingly, in Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, 13. Again, just a few more verses. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. And then the, that theme is picked up again later on in, in Isaiah 49. The captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible will be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you. I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And so we see here Jesus, the Mighty One. He's the same one. He's the same humble servant. He's the beloved Son. He's the Savior who delivers He's the one who doesn't throw away bent reeds or smoking wicks. He is the one who binds Satan and plunders his house and delivers people who are enthralled to Satan's sin and death. Now, binding is not a technique of exorcism. Binding indicates a comprehensive superiority of might. It indicates that Jesus is the superior one across the board to Satan. And it also indicates the comprehensive effect of the coming of the kingdom of God. An occasional exorcism, a smattering of exorcisms, does not indicate a plundering. It's not the same thing. And the kingdom of God is not about a saved soul here or there, an exorcism here or there, a healing here or there. It is about... Satan's house being plundered. It's not, the kingdom of God is not about an underground railroad where a few of Satan's souls are stolen and smuggled across the border to heaven. It is about Christ coming here, the Spirit coming here, Jesus laying claim here, and saying, This belongs, this what we call the real world belongs to God, and I am taking it. Back, We should think of the confrontation between Satan and Jesus when Jesus was tempted. Satan offered him all the kingdoms and peoples of the world if Jesus would worship him. Now, it's become somehow popular in our theology today to think that Jesus resisted that temptation easily because he didn't want this world. Satan is no fool. He would not tempt Jesus with something he doesn't want. It would not be a temptation. It was a temptation. Precisely because that is exactly what Jesus came for. 
this people, this fallen people, in this fallen world. Notice the whole direction of the kingdom in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, not us go. Thy kingdom come, which means what? Thy will be done on earth. The locus of the kingdom is earth. The origin of the kingdom is heaven. It is not the other way. It is from there to here. And that's what Jesus brings. And somehow we've come to think that Jesus here, binding Satan, plundering his house when he's here, before his death, before his resurrection, before his ascension, we see him plundering. We see him advancing the kingdom, and yet we think somehow after his death and resurrection and ascension, he decides to not. He stops. It makes no sense. Well, just read the Great Commission and ask yourself what that reads like. That's basically an order to go and plunder (laughs) within this meaning of the word. Claim the broken reeds, the smoking flags. Announce that Jesus is the Lord of this world. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, before John even gets into the prophecy, he says that he has come and is speaking in the name of Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay? However you want to interpret the prophecy, you have to deal with the prologue. That was a fact 2,000 years ago. And so Jesus is saying, he's showing, in a, his ministry is like a microcosm of what's going to happen through the church, through his followers once he's ascended to the, to the Father. In other words, it's going to continue to happen. This is a microcosm of what the kingdom of God is all about and what his followers are going to do. They're going to continue to show all the characteristics that he does and to plunder Satan's house. Now, in this context, Jesus in verse 30 declares, He who is not with him me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, it's interesting that in Mark, Jesus says the opposite at one point. He says, whoever is not against us is for us. Well, the difference is explained by the context. In in Mark chapter 9, the situation, and again, is another exorcism type of a context. There's an exorcist who is honoring Jesus, in effect, by using his name, even though he's not a recognized disciple. And Jesus tells his disciples, hey, leave him alone. He says, no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. He who is not against us is with us. But you see that in Matthew, this is a very different situation. Here, Jesus' authority has not only been questioned, it's been ascribed to Satan. So Jesus is confronted with a clear clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, between the power of God's spirit and the power of Satan, between the heart of a disciple and a hardness of heart, that declares the manifest work of God to be the work of Satan. In such a context, things are black and white. And to not expressly be with Jesus is to be against him. To not be gathering with him and gathering people to him is to be scattering the sheep. 
And then Jesus goes on in verse 31 32 and says uh, one of the most um, confusing, uh, stumbled over, I guess we could say, uh, passages in the New Testament. I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the one to come. Now, first thing we need to notice is that the first word Jesus says here is therefore. That's the first word he says, therefore. And that indicates that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit he's talking about has to be understood in terms of the Pharisees' charge against Jesus and, and, and in a context where it is manifest that this is the Spirit of God is ascribed to be the work of Satan himself. So this indicates a complete hardness of heart and a perversity of spirit in the face of the greatest possible light and truth from God. And so it, it boils down to the very spirit that was condemned in Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. That is what the Pharisees are doing, and that is why Jesus is bringing up this warning. Now, we might wonder, as part of this, why would blasphemy against the Son be forgiven and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit not be forgiven? Well, I think one of the things going on here is, you remember, the law always required at least two witnesses. And, and Jesus here, I think, is, is in effect viewing himself as the Son, as the first witness, and the Holy Spirit as the second witness. And thus to reject the testimony of the Spirit, to blaspheme the Spirit, describe his word as being Satan's word, his power as being Satan's power, is to reject the final witness. And it's not just a passive rejection. It's an active speaking against the Spirit of God, speaking of it as the spirit of evil, speaking of the spirit of truth as the spirit of lie, with all of the light that they had, everything before them, okay? And so it's, it's uh, you know, again, there's been a lot of confusion and heartache that's come about from this passage because of Christians wondering and, and over have they committed the unforgivable sin? Have they committed the unforgivable sin? Well, let me tell you something. The unforgivable sin is not something one can commit inadvertently or momentarily. It's not something you can do inadvertently while on the way to the grocery store or on the way to work. If you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, you have not committed it. I assure you, you have not committed it. The only persons who could ever be guilty... Of, of, of blaspheming the Holy Spirit in this way that it's talking about, the unforgivable sin, are those who are completely unconcerned with whether they have committed it or else are happy to have committed it. It doesn't even refer to blasphemy against the Spirit, I don't think, on, on a single occasion, but rather to a life ended and confirmed in a state of hardened rejection of the testimony of the Spirit. <clears throat> One of the interesting things about heaven or hell, <clears throat> and in the Bible we just get these little glimpses glimpses about both. We never have any kind of a protracted passage laying out for us 
in a uh, systematic way a whole theology of heaven and a whole theology of hell. But one of the things that we see showing up is that entrance into heaven or hell is not a departure from the path you've been on. It is a, an arrival at the destination toward you have, which you have been walking for all, of your, all along. That's the way heaven or hell is. It's not like suddenly being binged up to the starship. It's an arrival at the path, uh, uh, to, at the destination from the path you have been walking. And then another thing that we see is that there is a kind of a confirmation um, of whatever we are and whatever we've come to be at that time. We know that as Christians, um, heaven means, the presence of the Lord means, there's no more sin we're contending with. We're not contending with our own flesh anymore. We're not contending with that. That's gone, the impulse to sin, the wrestle with an antipathy toward God and all the rest of it. We're confirmed in righteousness. We completely become uh, what we have been in Christ, completely. So there's, there's no more doubts, there's no more hesitancies, there's no more backing and forthing and wrestling. We become completely what we are in Christ. But the opposite is also true. The person who, when God honors a lifetime worth of decisions, okay, which is, that's, that's what hell, hell is the ultimate complement to the freedom of man. That a lifetime of decisions would be honored. Okay? And you have a confirmation there too. There's no more the people who have rejected God, rejected God, turned away from Him, rejected the light, and on and on and on. There's a confirmation kind of a thing that happens there. There's no more restraining influence. They become completely what they have been in part as they have walked for a lifetime away from God. And so what that means is it's not that you have people who are happy to be in hell, but it will be full of people who would rather be there than be with God. Because you will have no more uh, restraining influence. And so this is a wake-up call to the arrogant and to the hardened, is what this discussion of the unforgivable sin and the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit it's a wake-up call to the arrogant and the hardened, people just like what the Pharisees were doing here. It's not meant to be some kind of a specter to frighten Christians of tender conscience. It has nothing to do with that. I might also note in passion here that this is one of the great exaltations of the Spirit in the Bible. We know that one of the themes among the Trinity is even though you have the three persons and you, and you have authority within the Trinity, you have headship within the Trinity. The Father is eternally the Father. It's not, the Trinity is not eternally thing one, thing two, thing three. Okay, it's not a commune. But at the same time, we see mutual honor. We know, we see the Son honoring the Father by submitting to the Father. We see the Father honoring the Son by exalting the Son. We see that. We see the Spirit honoring the Father by exalting the Son. He honors the Son and honors the Father. We see that, 
But we don't often see, if we don't have eyes to see, if we're not looking for it, it's like, where do the Father and the Son ever exalt the Spirit, who's always pointing away from Himself, always pointing to the Son, to the glory of the Father? Well, you see it right here. Elsewhere in the Scripture, we know, you know, blasphemy against the Son, not only the Son, but against the Father will be forgiven, not against the Spirit. Here you see the Father and the Son exalt the Spirit, the final witness. And I think that's important for us to, to recognize. Well, the Pharisees' hardness and maliciousness, it provides the setting then finally here at the end for Jesus to reflect on the power and significance of words. And Jesus brings up two different analogies, two images. One of a tree and its fruit, and the other of a man and his treasury. In both cases, what comes out, Jesus says, is a true indicator of what lies within. A tree is known by its fruit, he says in verse 33, and by implication, a man is known by his words. So fruit and words are the product of something. Fruit is the product of the true nature of a tree. Words are the product of the true heart of a person. You can look at fruit and know the tree. You can look at words and know the person. If evil words are coming out, you know the treasury from which they have come is evil. In other words, what is spilt out of a jar when it is jostled is the same thing that was in the jar before it was jostled. If you jostle and you get acid spilt on you, you know what was in the jar before you happen to jostle it. And Jesus says in verse 36, another very misunderstood saying, I say to you, for every idle word men may speak, they will give account on it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, the traditional translation of idle word has led many a Christian to miss what Jesus is really getting at here. When we hear idle word, idle to us means casual. Casual word. Any word that doesn't have any kind of big meaning attached to it. In other words, small talk. And then we get the idea here that Jesus is saying, well, if you engage in small talk, if you engage in any talk that's not serious talk, then you're going to be judged for that. But the eye, the eye here, here that Jesus is getting at is the other meaning of idle. If you say somebody is idle, what do you mean? They, be, they don't work. <laughs> they have no substance. They don't work. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's empty. It's empty. And that's the kind of idea that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the kind of words that are coming out of the Pharisees in this passage. Those are words that are not doing the work of God. Those are words that are tearing down the work of God. But it would also include uh, any words that don't accomplish anything. They don't have good content. In other words, they're, hip, they're empty, they're hypocritical, they're manipulative, they're lying, they're broken promises. All of those kind of things are words that don't work. And that is what Jesus is getting at here. Broken promises unpaid vows, manipulative words, flattering words, seeking to indebt somebody else to you. All of those kind of things would be included. He's not talking about small talk. You know, sometimes small talk is a real act of love. 
real act of love. Um, I went to college in Mississippi, you know, that's part of the Deep South, and there's a certain culture and tradition there, and conversation is, is part of that. And um, I, uh, I had a couple of classmates, one was a guy, one was a girl, and, and both, uh, they were Christians, they had the gift of small talk. They could talk, uh, and, and it wasn't like it was stupid. It was actually a loving thing because they could put you at ease in any situation. Were you nervous? Did you feel on the spot? Did you not know what to say? They were, it was such a loving thing because they could just draw you out. They could put you at ease. They could make you feel comfortable, and they could do that at any time with anybody. And so small talk sometimes is a very loving, considerate, and courteous thing to do when it's done to the glory of God, as these people uh, did. And I, uh, I envied them in the good sense of envy. I wished I'd had that gift. I didn't have that gift. I don't have that gift. Well, let's stop at this point and just consider briefly some practical ways to apply this to ourselves. Well, one of the things we're told, one of the biggest admonitions for us in the New Testament is for us to imitate Christ. Now, obviously, there are ways in which we cannot imitate Christ. We cannot imitate him in dying and atoning death. Can't do that. But we're supposed to imitate him in his character, in his faith. He's, he is not just the object of our faith. He's also the author, we're told, of our faith in Hebrews 12. And he is the perfecter of our faith. You want to know what a man of faith really looks like? You go to Jesus. He is the preeminent example. And so we're supposed to be like him. Well, we've seen Jesus exhibit a number of different things here, and we're really supposed to be like him in all of these ways. We see the servanthood. We see the, the sonship. We see, a, uh, we see bravery. We see courage. We see a willingness to fight in the right way about the right things. And in all of it, we see a kind of a, a passion or a, you might even say a fierceness that Jesus is fierce in his compassion. I, I, sometimes I hesitate to, lose that, to use that kind of word because sometimes some of us, diff, we all struggle with different things. Some of us struggle sometimes with being too intense in our personalities in the wrong kind of way. So when I use a word like fierce, I'm not saying that. You know, uh, being like Jesus for, for some of us will mean being in a lot of settings less intense, a lot more peaceful, a lot more gracious, a lot more thankful, and so forth. But we, so let's use the word passionate. One of the things, if you were going to describe David, you would say he is passionate. Even when David blew it, he was passionate. Uh, and with Jesus, we see this. His, his servanthood, first of all, I think we start there, is passionate. And the essence of a servant here is somebody who is in submission to God. And we start to see that that's also, that is the root, that's the essence of sonship. It's the essence of being a warrior, of being a mighty one. It's an essence of all of those things at the root of it is this 
heart of submission, of yieldedness, which is really the biblical meaning of meekness. That's what it means, to be meek. To be yielded, it has nothing to do with weak. It means to be yielded to God. And Jesus is wholehearted, complete, and passionate in his yieldedness to God. He says in John chapter 5, I always do the things which please the Father. He'll say things like, I can only do what I see the Father doing. You know, and that kind of thing. We, he's completely yielded. He's not about promoting himself. You know that with Jesus, if he gets angry, it is because God has said, get angry. In so many words. It is because God would be angry here. And so Jesus is angry in the same way, to the same extent, for the same reasons, and for the same purposes. He is completely yielded to God, and that's what we need to be too. That's the essence of it. Are you yielded to God? Do you see life that way? Do you get up that way? Do you have checkpoints during the day where you remember that whatever you're doing, life's really, it's complicated in one sense, it's simple in another sense. It's just a matter of walking with God, honoring Him, being yielded to Him. You don't have to worry about protecting yourself, promoting yourself, or any of these things. You worry about pleasing God. That's the way Jesus did it. And if we do that, we're going to have some of the same tenderheartedness and compassion that we see with Him. We will start dealing with broken reeds and smoking flaxes, the smoking wicks, the same way, of which are we all. Okay? This is why you have language like this in the New Testament. Peter, love one another fervently, you might say fiercely, passionately, with a pure heart. No motives, no ulterior motives. Okay? Or Paul, Colossians 3, put on tender mercies. Put it on. Don't just do it. Wear it. Be it. Kindness and humility, meekness and long-suffering. And bear with one another, forgiving one another, just like Christ has done. This will become our attitudes. This will become our attitudes toward one another because we are all broken reeds. And we're all smoking wicks. We just smoke a little different from one another. We're a little bent a little different from one another. But understanding what Christ has done for us produces in you a great amount of compassion uh, for other people. It also produces courage in us. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Notice this is like military language. Watch, be brave, be strong. And then, but the very next verse, let all you do be done with love. This, all this goes together. So I, and finally, Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Take these things, the yieldedness, the tenderheartedness, the compassion, the love uh, toward others, the bravery, the strength, the willingness to stand, the willingness to own Jesus in the face of a culture that is quickly becoming more like the Pharisees, you could say. All of those things we're called to be because Jesus is all of those things. May God grant you strength to walk in this path. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.